You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. It's supposed to be what kind of kingdom is this? Although what king of this kingdom is this might not be a bad sermon title as well. So you let me know after worship is over which one you prefer. (laughs) We are only 20 verses in to Mark's gospel, but it's still helpful to have a quick recap of events so far. Jesus has already been baptized by John in the Jordan River. He spent 40 days in the wilderness on some sort of ancient world's version of a vision quest. And now, back from the wilderness, he is busy collecting followers, disciples on the water's edge of the Sea of Galilee. And last week's gospel ended with a call by Jesus saying, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Which, those of you who were part of our Zoom worship last Sunday may remember, is not so much an invitation to evangelism, but rather a full-throated call for social upheaval. You see, the Hebrew prophets who spoke of fishing for people understood that those folks who were caught by fishers are the rich and the powerful the ones who are exploding the poor for their own profit. It's kind of a divine justice. The scholar Ched Myers suggests we might paraphrase Jesus' invitation to those first followers like this. Follow me and I will show you how to catch the big fish. And Jesus hasn't intentionally come to Galilee at this point. He's come to the land ruled by Herod Antipas, who is a client of the Roman Empire. And Jesus pulls no punches here. He proclaims on Herod's land that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Dramatically, Jesus sets the stage for his ministry, which will contrast the good news of the realm of God that Jesus is bringing into the world over and against the oppressive realities of imperial power. Jesus' preaching and his invitation, they're starting to get results. Simon, Andrew, James, John, they all hear this radical call of Jesus and choose to leave their family fishing businesses to follow the teacher. We have to imagine that they are ready to shake things up. And perhaps they're asking themselves, where will this takedown of the powerful begin? Are we going to Jerusalem, to Zephyrus, to Tiberias? 
How will the unjust get what they deserve? And when will God's kingdom replace the occupational military might of Rome? So today we find them in Capernaum, of all places, a small fishing village about 10 miles from Tiberias, which is the capital city of Herod Antipas. Capernaum is the hometown of Simon, Simon Peter. And so maybe that makes it a natural home base for Jesus and his newly acquired followers. Much later, archaeologists will tell us that there's a house in Capernaum known as Peter's house, which will have become a place of pilgrimage and Christian worship, a place of great spiritual significance. But at this point in the Gospels, it's merely an out-of-the-way place, a less-than-auspicious location to start a revolution. And it's the Sabbath day. They are at the local synagogue where Jesus is teaching, and Mark doesn't give us a description of what Jesus teaches or even why he's teaching there. Was he invited? Was the rabbi sick and Jesus kind of just filled in? After all, it's not his hometown. He doesn't have any connection with Capernaum. So we have to wonder why Jesus is speaking there. Mark doesn't seem fit to tell us what he teaches. Whatever Jesus says in the synagogue, it is unlike usual pulpit fare. The folks, we are told, are astonished at his teaching. Or rather, they are astonished at the way in which he preaches his approach to teaching. For Mark says he taught with authority, not like the scribes. Now, perhaps that means that Jesus didn't use footnotes. Or that he didn't tip his hat to all the beloved teachers of scripture who had come before him. Or maybe he was just preaching passionately. Or maybe he spoke for a long time, which new preachers are wont to do sometimes. Or it could be he had a style of teaching which just naturally caught folks' attention. The people are astonished, Mark tells us. I would note that astonished doesn't have a value judgment placed upon it. Is it an impressed astonished or a scandalized astonished? We don't know. It's not clear. We can tell that Jesus makes a strong impression, but at this point we don't quite know what that means. But before Mark can tell us about the content of Jesus' preaching, it seems a disturbance breaks out in the middle of the sanctuary. There's a man possessed by an unclean spirit who starts shouting out at Jesus from the congregation. That'll get your attention, won't it? Now the word unclean spirit, the Greek word for unclean is akatharto, acathartic. A as in not, right? So think asymmetrical, not symmetrical, or atheist, not a theist. So acathartic means not cathartic. And it's often translated as unclean or not clean, but that root word also has within it the idea of release. So the spirit is not released. We can think of the man possessed by a bound 
pent-up, held-in spirit, as if the man is caged by the presence of this unclean spirit. This is the first big confrontation of Jesus' ministry, and it happens not with religious leaders, not with Herod Antipas or any other political leaders, not with a soldier or any symbol of the Roman Empire. No, Jesus' first confrontation of many conflicts to come is with a demon-possessed man in a synagogue, in a holy space, in a little backwater fishing village on the Sabbath day. Now, Mark gives us no clue as to who this man is. Is he a stranger to the synagogue, or is he someone that everybody knows? We don't even know if the man until this moment has seemed normal to everyone else. Was this a one-time occurrence? Was it a reaction to Jesus' teaching? Or was the man often prone to shouting and disruptions? Either way, this is one heck of a scene with a man bound by an unclean spirit in the synagogue, this juxtaposition of holy and unclean together, all under one roof. And if we are honest, it's one with which we are quite familiar. We know that whenever we gather in our holy places, we will find human brokenness. That we too, if we are honest, come into holy spaces bound up by things that have control over us. Now, we are 21st century folk, and we may no longer believe in possession by unclean spirits, but our society is not immune to other types of possession. So many things have the power to possess us. Anger, resentment can overwhelm us. Fear or grief can paralyze us. We may feel at times powerless over compulsive behaviors, the power of addiction, the pain of substance abuse. Others may be bound up by workaholism. Or our imaginations may be captured by the idea of radical individualism. In many ways, it seems we all are prisoners of a society which seeks to commodify every part of our lives and we cannot break out of it. So you and I may not shout out in the middle of worship, but we too often are possessed by many things and in need of liberation. And it's here, I think, that the communal aspect of the man's condition begins to come clear to us. Yes, it's the man that has the unclean spirit. He is bound, he is caged in some unhealthy way. But the man's suffering is not his alone. He may be that man with an unclean spirit, but it is that desperate situation which defines him over and against his community. Everybody knows, oh, he's the man with an unclean spirit. They know his history, his problems, and that label goes with him wherever he is. The community, too, you see, is deeply affected by the suffering of this man, whether they recognize it or not. The man's boundness 
his label as unclean affects not only him because they are a community in which a person bound by an unclean spirit lives a life of brokenness and despair. He is a part of the community. But as we dig into this passage, I think it's important to remember that there's another spirit present besides this unclean spirit caging the man. We know that Jesus himself is possessed by a spirit too, by the spirit of God at his baptism. When Mark says the heavens were torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him and a voice came from the heavens saying, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. So here in the middle of a synagogue, an unclean spirit controlling a man confronts the man who is marked and named beloved by God's Spirit. The kingdom of God, which Jesus proclaims, is at stake in this encounter in this little synagogue in Capernaum. Now, we might notice that the unclean spirit knows exactly who Jesus is, while the other folks in the synagogue, not so much. The unclean spirit names him, You're Jesus of Nazareth, but more importantly, goes on to name him the Holy One of God. Jesus is God's holy man. And so the unclean spirit throws down the gauntlet. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And Jesus shuts it down, saying, silence, get out of him. And with those words, Jesus separates the man from his affliction, from the spirit which had kept him bound up and held in. And then there's a little more drama as the unclean spirit throws the man into convulsions and then releases him. Suddenly the focus of the story switches. Away from the man who's now freed from bondage, And away from Jesus, who has just successfully completed a public challenge to his authority and ministry. And the focus now shifts to those good religious folk who are all still there watching all of this, still sitting in their pews. Mark's already told us at the beginning of this encounter that they've heard Jesus' teachings and they were astonished, remember? Remember? And now they've just witnessed an amazing healing, and their first response to, the, to it is to question, what's this? What's this? A new kind of authority? Which, when you think about it, is a really odd reaction, isn't it? We might think that such a miracle could be a basis of belief in Jesus as being a prophet of God. After all, even the unclean spirit proclaims Jesus to be God's holy man. But no, first they were astonished and now they are amazed. But there's no repentance. There's no expression of belief in the teachings of Jesus. No sense that they will now follow this holy man. They remain where they are in their pews. In Mark's gospel, Jesus announces the realm of God is at hand and he calls folks to repentance and he invites them to follow. 
And then when his teaching is interrupted, Jesus reaches out not to silence the disturbance, but with compassion to heal the man who is caged by this possession and hurting. And the good folks of Capernaum just sit there. This good news Jesus is bringing is an unfolding story, you see. It is one not of condemnation and destruction, but it is one of deliverance and hope when all hope had seemed lost. Now, quick Bible study moment. If you take a look at this passage in the bulletin, scholars will call its construction a chiastic structure. Or more specifically, lots of scholars call it a Markin sandwich, okay? So Mark likes to compose parts of his narrative in layers, like a sandwich. So the outer section, the bread, is the reaction of the people. Astonished on the top, amazed on the bottom. You see that in the scripture? And then the next layer is the crying out. So right underneath the bread, there's a crying out. The spirit, unclean spirit cries out at Jesus. And then at the very end, right before the reaction of the people, it cries out again after Jesus commands it to leave. And the middle layer is the center of the encounter. That brief dialogue between the unclean spirit and Jesus. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. That's the meat of the sandwich right there. The structure of Mark's story points us to the central idea that Mark is trying to get at for us, which is the identification of Jesus as the Holy One of God, and that the beloved of God is coming to liberate us from that which has us bound up. I think the reason Mark doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus teaches in the synagogue is that for Mark... Jesus is the message. His authority comes not from what he says, but from who he is, the beloved of God. The spirit at his baptism knows him. You are my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. The evil spirit knows who he is. He is the holy one of God. But the good folks who've come to weekly services in the synagogue, they haven't a clue. You want to know what the kingdom of God is? Mark says, look at Jesus. You want to know what the good news is? Look at Jesus first. Jesus is the beloved of God, and he begins his ministry in a particular way. On the margins. Away from the corridors of power, in little towns off the beaten path, where Jesus encounters broken people and brings healing and wholeness. The kingdom of God is when Jesus sees people who are hungry and feeds them. The kingdom of God comes near when he encounters a man possessed by a binding spirit and he brings liberation. 
those foolhardy disciples who have left everything to follow? Do they really know who Jesus is at this point in the gospel story? To paraphrase Oliver Hardy, do they know what another fine mess they've gotten themselves into? (laughs) We'll have to keep reading this gospel story to find out. But that same question is asked of us too. We who profess to follow Jesus, who dare to call ourselves disciples of Christ, have we got a clue about what we've signed up for? Do we know what kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing into our world, into our neighborhood, into Moorhead, Kentucky? Do we know who this Jesus really is? Jesus says, follow me for the kingdom of God is coming near. But we have to keep living the story to find out for ourselves. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.